we're in the middle of a series on, on love, obviously, the summer of love. I'm going to come back to the story a little bit. We're going piece by piece through the uh, description of love that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13. And when, if you were to ask the average person what love even is, uh, you would get a, you know, a litany of different answers. Just if you pull people aside on the side of the street and ask them this, you could get basically, it is endorsing my lifestyle with, without ever criticizing any of the decisions I ever make. That's a popular one today. You could get somebody saying, well, it's saying the brutal, honest truth, regardless of how it's received or what people think about it. Tough love. You could get that answer. That's obviously what adopted mom would define love as. But we're not looking for cultural answers. We're looking for the biblical answer and the biblical description to these things. And so Jesus is described in John 1 as being full of grace and truth. John 1.18, it's not going to be up on the screen, but you can look it up later. It says he's full of grace and truth. And I think when we think about this um, combination of grace and truth, we're getting closer to the idea of what the biblical picture of love even is. Because if you have one of those things without the other, you have a distortion. Grace without truth is enablement. It's always just patting somebody on the back saying, it's okay. I know you're living in a self-destructive lifestyle, but I'm never going to challenge that. And that's not love. That's watching somebody destroy themselves and encouraging them along the way. But then on the flip side, truth without grace isn't biblical love either. That's turning the, the, you know, the sword of the spirit into a bludgeoning tool, beating people down and saying things like adopted mom that were true. And yet there's, it's just completely devoid of grace and doesn't re like reflect the heart of the Lord at all. Because let me just say, going back to that story, what profit came of how adopted mom addressed bio mom? Do you think bio mom was like, you know what? You're right. You are right. I'm going to change now. It's like, no. Truth without love is very hard to receive. And you know this. You will, you will take things from someone who you know loves you and communicates even hard truths in a way that's easier to handle. Far more, you take much more of that than somebody else just who you're not going to miss their love, who's just, you know, brutal, short, or rude, or something like that. But this thing of love is very, very important. And, you know, the scripture that we read just a few minutes ago, John 13, 34 through 35, is going to be up on the screen here. It says, this is Jesus speaking. It's John 13. This is after he washed the disciples' feet. This is right after Judas was getting his feet dirty again after having them washed to go betray Jesus. And so Judas had left, and now there's just Jesus with the 11 disciples. And this conversation goes on for a few chapters until his crucifixion later in the gospel, according to John. So it says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then Jesus continues in verse 35 and says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so Jesus himself says, This is the defining quality of what it means to be one of my disciples. This is how people are going to know that you follow me, if you have love for one another. So if Jesus says this, then it's obviously crucial that we have an understanding of this. It, you could go so far as to say that if we've missed love but gotten a lot of other things right, then it's kind of like missing the forest for the trees. We're, just, we're, we're totally focusing on the wrong thing entirely. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 22, this won't be up on the screen, but this is a really famous passage of Scripture where somebody asked him, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Singular, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then he says this, this really interesting phrase. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, 
law, and he says all the law and the prophets. Remember, Jesus is speaking here. This is before the New Testament was written. They had the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. That's, that was the scriptures at the time because the New Testament hadn't been compiled. And so when he says law and the prophets, that is a just a way of referring to the entire Old Testament. You'll see this, this kind of phraseology in the Bible, the law and the prophets, and that refers to the totality of the Bible. And so what is Jesus saying? All of it hinges on love. If you're loving God and you're loving your neighbor, all of it will fall in line. Which stands to reason, if you think about the Ten Commandments, if you love God, you're not going to have any other, you know, gods before him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder him, you know. Someone needs to hear that today. But, you know, and so it stands to reason. You're like, okay, if I'm actually loving God and loving other people, then I'm going to just by virtue obey the rest of what the Bible has to say. Does that make sense? Yes. All right, thank you guys. Don't mislead me. Y'all made me think y'all were a communicative crowd, so don't, don't, don't change on me now. So we're in this series, um, Summer of Love. We could get into a kind of textbook definition of what love is. I could give you kind of a sterile explanation of the definition of agape, which is the Greek word that's translated as love. But, you know, you could do that on your own time this afternoon. All of you know what Google is. You know, and so you could do that research. And so I don't want to do something simple like that for you. I want to go to what we've been looking at, which is 1 Corinthians 13, because instead of defining love, Paul describes it in a very multifaceted way. It's as though he's holding up a stone, a gem, like a diamond or something, and he's slowly rotating it in front of us and letting the light reflect off the different facets of it. Love is this. Love is not that. Love is. Love is not. And so this whole summer is dedicated to asking the question, what is love? And we can see even just from the passages we've looked at that this, this is um, an indispensable and crucial question for us to understand if we call ourselves Jesus followers. So where we are now in uh, the series is love is not rude. If you didn't know, love is not rude. And so uh, let's just put 1 Corinthians uh, 13 back up on the screen. We're going to catch up where we are. And so, so far we've been through some of these already. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Um, it does not boast. It is not proud. And then in verse 5, it continues. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, and it goes on. But the one we're looking at today is love is not rude, to which you're saying, I don't see that. <laughs> where does it say love is not rude? <laughs> The NIV here translates it actually as it does not dishonor others. And so I'm going to have a few different ways that this word is translated put up on the screen from, a different, from different translations. So the New American Standard says it does not act disgracefully. Uh, the King James, so poetically, says doth, doth not behave itself unseemly. I don't even know how to pronounce these words. ESV, New King James, New Living Translation, New English Translation, just say rude. And then NIV, of course, says it does not dishonor others. And so the reason why I want to put these up on the screen is because we have a general idea of what rudeness is. If you were to say, so-and-so is rude to me, the other person's not going to be like, what does that mean? I never heard of that before. What is rude? And I was like, no, you have an idea. But just by looking at the different ways that this word is translated here, it gives you a little bit more of a fully orbed view of this. So it doesn't act disgracefully. It doesn't behave itself unseemly, which I've used three of those words in the past month, maybe. So, and then, you know, rude, then of course, it does not dishonor others. And so just looking at the ways that these different translations translate it, help us to get an understanding of what it is. But I thought we could still get a little nerdy real quick. And so I want you to help me out with this. This is, there is the, uh, the Greek word, let me pause, the New Testament was not written in English. The New King, or the King James Version was not what Paul wrote. 
And so I, I, I do feel the need to say that because of some things that I've heard in my life. But it was written in, in what language, for those of you who know? Greek. It was written in Greek. It's all Greek to us, right? And so it was written in Greek, and the common Greek of the day, Koine Greek, and it was translated into English. And so behind every English phrase, there's a Greek phrase. And while sometimes going deep into the Greek isn't necessarily helpful, like it's just like, okay, I found out that the Greek word means exactly what the English word says. It can also be really helpful at times to do word studies. And so the word that's translated as any of these ways right here is, let's see here, askemaneo. So repeat after me, as... K, man, a, o. We'll have your diplomas at the door on the way out because you just all passed seminary level Greek. Askemaneo. Now you can hear in there the schema, schema, askemaneo. It comes from two other Greek words, a and schema. And schema sounds like our word schematic, and I'm going to stop going down this rabbit trail. But the reason why I say this is a means without. It means without. And schema means like external form shape. And so the idea is that it's something, oskemaneo would refer to something that is shapeless, without form. Which, even if we were to translate it that way, it can still communicate the idea. Like, if I said so-and-so behaved without form, like, certain things come to your mind. Like, that makes some sense to you. But I say this to say that these words, translated as rude and dishonoring others, refers to something external. It has to do with how we interact with other people. It has to do with our behaviors. It has to do with um, what we do. And so you could even think it like this. It's not enough just to mean well on the inside if you don't do good on the outside. You can mean well, but be rude. I, listen, I don't know adopted mom's heart. I don't think she woke up and said, I plan on being a, like an uber jerk today. Like, I don't think that was like in her heart. Maybe it was. I think that, again, she was cautioning her son from living in a self-destructive lifestyle that his mother was engaging in. So she was right, maybe on kind of a base level, but the delivery was very wrong. It was off. And so some of you might be saying right now, well, it's like if we're just, or thinking, and if you're not, let me plant this thought so I can respond to it. Um, well, if it's just external, like any of us know that if you're only externally doing the right thing, but internally it's not good, what good is that? So even if externally you're nice and not rude, what about the inside? Because we're sitting here talking about a word that means externally without form, shapeless in how we interact with people. And I would just say, just remember that this isn't isolated in what Paul says. He's giving a list of things that love is and is not, and this is one of the indispensable components, but it's meant to be taken as a whole. Like if all you did were like, I'm going to ignore the other qualities of love that Paul says here, and I'm just going to do the love is not rude, all you have is Southern charm. <laughs> all you have is this veneer of friendliness and, and niceness, which I'm from the South. I ain't hating on the South. Listen, I've been in the South my entire life, but there's the whole, bless their heart, they're idiots. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it's, it's, it's real though. And so it's just keep it together, be nice, talk sweetly, drink cheer wine and sweet tea. And then, but you know, what about the inside? So I just did want to say that disclaimer that while we're talking about this, I'm not saying the totality of love is external, but I am saying that an important component of it is according to Paul. And so let me... um. I wrote down a few examples here of what this could look like, just to put some skin on this. So to behave in a rude way is to behave in a way that dishonors other people. It is a way that just doesn't take into consideration their sensitivities. It's a way that says, I know what I'm doing is right, and you may be, and therefore other people just have to deal with it. It's the mentality, it takes too long to take other people's feelings into consideration, so I'll be harsh to get the ball moving forward. 
Some examples I wrote were highlighting something someone did wrong when there was no reason for mentioning it, like it wasn't redemptive at all. That's just rude. There's nothing loving about that. Um, pointing out someone's shortcomings in public, again, there's nothing redemptive about that. Um, so gossiping. Uh, criticizing a pastor or teacher's message over lunch. That one might be a little self-serving. Don't be rude. Don't do that. Um, being overly blunt, being harsh in your speech, not caring so much how your words affect other people, saying everything you're thinking, that's a mistake, and constantly venting your emotions. These are all examples of what it can look like to actually to be rude, to dishonor other people. In fact, let me read you this quote. It's from a, a, a Bible scholar who I would love to give you his name because I want to give credit to whom credit's due, but I have no idea how to pronounce it. And so if you want this guy's name, find me afterwards and I'll give it to you. I'll let you see it because I'd rather just say, I don't know how to say those letters put together than get up here and mumble around and not make any sense. But listen to this quote. It's phenomenal. He says, referring to this command about, you know, not to act disgracefully or dishonor others. He says, Paul is concerned not only with the Christian's character, but also with the way he expresses this character outwardly. It's like what we're talking about with the schema. Some Christians think it makes no difference whether they speak bluntly or tactfully, as long as they speak the truth. Paul says the manner of our speech and actions does make a difference. Then further down in the quote, this guy says, some people even boast about their bluntness as though it were a virtue to slap people in the face with the truth. Their friends defend them by saying they mean well. That is not enough, Paul tells us. We must not only mean well, but appear well. We must grace the gospel of love that we are so zealous to propagate. No man has a right to be blunt in his speech and shapeless and ugly in his behavior, no matter how right his beliefs may be. Can you relate? I can relate. If our only metric is, are we right? Then that's truth without grace. We still have to be gracious in our speech. And so, like I said, this word... Um, rude, uh, doesn't dishonor others. This is something that we get. Like, we can probably think of examples. But again, let me give you an example from my own life because I love, like, indicting myself in public and making myself look bad. So last time we were here at LifeSpring, or last time I spoke here, after this, after we, afterwards we went to Tucker Lake, which, I mean, I've driven by it on 40 so many times. It's just, I feel like it's on your North Carolina bucket list. It's like, yeah, I've been to Tucker Lake. Oh, you've never been there. I've been there. And so we went to Tucker Lake afterwards, and we were driving down 95 or whatever highway to get us closer there. And I was on the highway, and there's this dude coming onto the highway. And rule of the road, he should be the one that yields. He's the one entering the highway, and I'm here, and there's a car here. So I see that he's not about to yield. Like, this guy's going. And, like, we're in a minivan, large vehicle. He's in a pickup truck. I'm not sure who would have won, but it was, you know, they're both large vehicles. So I realize that he's not slowing down, and he's expecting me to yield, even though he's coming on. So, men, what did I do? I said men. <laughs> yes, I sped up. Thank, thank you, Will. I sped up, and so did he. It was bad, but at that point, I was like, there's no going back now. Like, we're both aware of this. Like, this is, there is, my masculinity is now on the line. So we speed up. He's, I don't know, like, our cars are going the same speed. He just starts coming into my lane. Again, there's a car right here, and it's getting narrower and narrower, and my heart's beating faster and faster. And I'm like, yield, dude, yield. Stop, just stop. And so he's getting close. So I'm kind of like on the lines between, you know, the two lanes almost. There's a car immediate to my left, and there's this guy coming in, and we're about to get sandwiched. You remember Star Wars Episode Four, the trash compactor? 
it was like that. It was like that. And so this is happening. I'm laying on the horn. We're all in the car. My heart's racing. Cortisol, the stress hormone, is flooding my body. My chest is hurting. And I'm like, I don't know if this car crash is going to kill us or if I'm just going to have a heart attack right now because it's really bad. Finally, he slows down, and I won. <laughs> but did I win? Did I win, though? I, I won according to the flesh, but in the kingdom, I think I just lost because I was like, this guy and I, I, again, I could be wrong, but I really felt like we were on the same page. Like, I felt like we both knew what was happening, and I had every intent of dishonoring this guy because of what he was trying to do by dishonoring me, you know? Because that's how, again, I, you know, as a man, that's how it feels in the earth sometimes at least. Or maybe I just have a problem. Maybe. In which case, this is really uncomfortable. But so then he gets behind me, and, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm stressed out, freaking out. And so... I won, but I was rude. I won, but I dishonored another person. It would have been much more to my credit to humble myself, slow down, and do exactly what Jesus did, which is let, like, let yourself be, I don't want to be careful here, but just basically take the low seat. Be like, hey, listen, does it mean that much to you? Then have it. You know, just take it. Just have it. You know, but I rather, I was like, no, I'd rather dishonor this guy and let him know it. And so we understand what rudeness means. We, listen, like I said, you don't need to go to seminary to understand what this means, but it does have to do with external behavior. And you can probably think of examples from your own life. And so we could wrap up here. I could say, there you go. Okay, we're good. We know what rude means. Don't do it. You know, okay, go to Papa John's and then to Planet Fitness. Um, maybe in the opposite order though, that would be that would not be pleasant. But, I, but there's more to say here. There's something much more foundational, much more fundamental than just a conversation about, hey, don't do this. Rudeness, dishonoring others, the presence or the absence thereof is not the ultimate issue. It's just an indicator of the presence or absence of love, which goes right back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this. And actually, I have a, a quote here from a man named Pete Scazzaro. He is a, he's a podcaster, author, teacher. I feel like those three you're supposed to always put together, podcaster, author, teacher, the trifecta of what it means to be a Christian celebrity. And so, but he's a, Pastor Dylan actually introduced me to him. He has a podcast called The, um, the Emotionally Healthy Leader, wonderful podcast. And I've really been blessed by it. And I was listening to it a few weeks ago, not looking for content, but he made a statement. And this statement was, it just really lined up with what we're talking about today, but also really spoke to my heart. He said, love really is the mark of a true and mature spirituality. Love really is the mark of a true and mature spirituality. And so the question I'd pose to you is, when you think of somebody who's spiritually mature, what comes to your mind? Is it love? Because again, I could, I could lean back on the passage we've already seen. Jesus says, by this, all people you know will know you're my disciples. We already saw Matthew 22. We could talk about how it says, um, and even of God, it says God is love in 1 John 4. And we can say, if we saw somebody who was really gifted, and yet they were really unloving, you might not be able to put your finger on why, but you could probably say, something's not right there. And I, I can't say that they're bit, like spiritually mature. Even if I can't think in concrete terms, I could just feel it. But on the flip side... Even if somebody doesn't seem over-the-top gifted, if they're walking in love, why would you feel more comfortable talking to that person than the highly gifted person? It's love. It's this very thing. And so when we, um, when we, when we look in the mirror, 
with uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We're talking specifically about not dishonoring others and not being rude. When we look in the mirror of this passage and we're honest with ourselves, what do we see? Because I mean, if you think of a mirror, it's like if there's something on our face, we need to see it so we can wipe it off. Just avoiding the mirror doesn't make that thing go away. It's still there and everybody else is seeing it. So although it can be painful to look in the mirror sometimes, we have to do it. It's something very important to do. When I look at myself in 1 Corinthians 13, including but not limited to um, the part we're looking at today, I don't like what I see that much. If I were being more honest, I'd have to write, Christian is sometimes impatient and rude. Christian is occasionally, oh, that's actually merciful. Christian is, can be uh, irritable and bitter. Uh, Christian can feel threatened when he sees people do things better than him. You know? If I actually am humble enough to look in the mirror and say these things, it's really unflattering. But here's the thing. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Jesus said. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled. If we choose to do this, it says that God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so if we choose to do this, if we choose to look in the mirror, if we choose to cooperate with what the Lord is saying to us through Paul here, then he's not going to leave us there long. He's promised not to. He said he will lift you up. By the way, exalt and humble... Just think, exalt means to lift up, humble means to lay low. So if we lift ourselves up, we will be laid low. If we lower ourselves, we will be lifted up. That's, that's the idea of what it means. And so being honest with ourselves is laying ourselves low. So I don't know about you, but I, when I look in the mirror, I see things that just are uh, indicative of a great need to grow in this area. And I also see in my life two things that I do that I think are very common when I see a lack of love. And again, remember, before moving on, remember what Pete Scazzaro said, and, and we... We agree with this. We're not just talking about love. We're talking about spiritual maturity here because these two things are inseparable. So when I look in the mirror and I see a lack of love slash spiritual maturity, there's two things we frequently do. And the first one is we hide behind giftedness or ability or accomplishment. We hide behind what we do so we don't have to acknowledge who we are. And this could come in a, in a lot of different forms, but let's just start with the text here. So I, we're in 1 Corinthians 13. So now that you guys are all scholars and you know, you'll get, be getting your diploma at the door, let me ask you this question. What comes before 1 Corinthians 13? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. What comes after 1 Corinthians 13? 14. So congratulations, not only can you speak Greek, you can count. So good for you guys. What's my point in saying this? My point in saying this is that 1 Corinthians 13 has a context. This isn't just some random thing where Paul's like, let me just get a scrap of paper, which I'm pretty sure not how it even worked back then. Getting paper and stuff like that was not nearly as accessible for us or as it is for us. But he's like, I just feel really poetic. Let me write something. Uh, married covers are going to love it going to be like the biggest hit every wedding ever. But, you know, but what I'm saying is 1 Corinthians 13, or 1 Corinthians, was a real letter written to real people in the real city of Corinth in the first century. It was a letter. And just like if you're reading a letter from somebody today, you're not like, you know what, I'm going to go about four-fifths of the way through it and just pick out a few sentences, pull them out of context, and then just think about those that ignore the rest. No, there's a flow of thought here. And so I'm not going to get into the entire explanation of this, but 1 Corinthians 12, just really, really quickly. Um, in fact, um, I, I, think, I think, Sean, when you spoke about this uh, a couple weeks ago, you, you got into a little bit about 1 Corinthians 12 as well. But it's about the body of Christ 
Jesus is the head, we're the body, and each of us has a unique indispensable part, and it's talking specifically about spiritual gifts. Because our place in the body is going to be connected to how God has gifted and wired us. Right? If you have a foot trying to be a hand, that's just not going to go that well. Let a hand be a hand, let a mouth be a mouth, let a foot be a foot. Right? And no part is any more or less valuable than the rest. In fact, that's what Paul says. He's like, the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you which would just be silly. A person just kind of pulling themselves forward on the ground. As you think about it just anatomically, it's like this makes total sense. It's a wonderful illustration. So he's talking about spiritual gifts. And the, first Corinthian, or the church in Corinth was evidently quite gifted. I mean, if you look at some of the way they're described, but if you read their letter, you would say, you know, they're gifted, but I can't say, I don't feel like I would call them mature based off of what we see. Gifted, but not mature. So 1 Corinthians 12, talking about gifts and, um, and their function in a gathering, uh, probably not exactly like this one, more like in a house, but in, in a, you know, a church gathering. And then there's 1 Corinthians 13. Then 1 Corinthians 14, he continues talking about gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy. And he goes into that. And so my point is this, though. 1 Corinthians 13 is framed up by two chapters talking about spiritual gifts. At the end of 1 Corinthians 12, the second half of the last, <clears throat> of the last verse, there is this hinge on which the chapters connect between chapters 12 and 13. So he's been talking about spiritual gifts, and at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, down here, and uh, yep, he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. That's what Paul says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Okay? Continuing for just the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so he says, you know, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Or specific, yet I will show you the most excellent way. He's making a comparison here. And he's making the comparison between gifts and love. He's just been talking about gifts. And he says, but let me show you the most excellent way. And then he uses a few gifts as examples. He goes through, you know, for example, if I speak with the tongues of the men and of angels, in the context, that's obviously referring to tongues. He just spent all this time talking about it. He goes on, um, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries but don't have love. He's, so essentially what he's saying is this. All of the gifts operating to the uttermost without love are nothing. And you get this. You could see someone who's a really gifted preacher. And yet if they're a jerk... You can just tell something is not right there. Does this make sense? Is this clicking? Um, one thing that we see is this, and this will be on the screen too. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit that measure maturity. Now, let me clarify, I'm not bashing spiritual gifts in any way, shape, or form. Far be it for me to ever call anything good that God... Far be it for me to call anything bad what God gives us, because it's a gift from God... It says the Holy Spirit gives, you know, each believer gifts as he wills. It's for the common good, the building up of the body of Christ, the glory of the Lord. Spiritual gifts are wonderful things. I mean, if I didn't think so, I wouldn't be speaking in front of you right now because I think that God has wired me this way. I'd be shooting myself in the foot. to be like, I think, you know, so I'm not saying anything, nothing negative about gifts. All I'm saying is they don't measure maturity, according to the Bible. You can be really good or gifted and yet immature. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. So what are the fruit of the Spirit? You might even know the song, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And if you don't know it, you're welcome. It'll be stuck in the rest of your head for the rest of your life. The head, yeah, and like you'll wake up in the middle of the night. It's like a nightmare. And so, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you see somebody who's walking in these qualities, then you, you would say, yeah, that's, that's a mature believer. Somebody who's walking in love and in joy. And, the, and notice for the first item in the list, it's what? Love, the very thing that we're talking about. And so I think it would be impossible to be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in your life and still be walking in immaturity, but it is possible to be manifesting the gifts of the Spirit in your life and be walking in immaturity. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, if I have all these things but have not love, to use his words, I am nothing. That's strong language. Not, I need to grow. I should probably give some attention to that. I am nothing if I have all these things without love. For me, um, the Lord has given me um, a good memory, a really good memory. And I think there's two reasons. One, uh, so I can remember a bunch of useless information about Lord of the Rings. A very marketable, useful life skill. Um, and second, because I believe God has called me to teach. I think he has. And I think he's confirmed that. And so what does it help me do? It helps me to remember the Bible. It's, it's, it helps me to remember scriptures. And this isn't something I can take credit for. This is something that God has given me. But here's the problem. People have erroneously thought that I was more spiritually mature than I am just because I can quote the Bible. Wrong. The Pharisees could quote the Bible like the back of their hand, and yet Jesus called them children of hell. You know, brood of vipers. So I, nobody would say that they were spiritually mature, at least nobody who's seeing things properly as the way Jesus did would. And so my point is this. It's like I have been able to hide behind giftedness and be able to quote scripture and stuff to deflect away from areas that need work. Does that make sense? You with me? And so, and let me broaden this a little bit. It's not just spiritual giftedness, because somebody in here might be like, well, I don't feel like I'm that spiritually gifted. We do this with accomplishments at work, personality, achievement, things like this. Anything that we can deflect... Um, a lack of love and hide behind that and distract ourselves with. And so that's the first thing we do. And the second thing we do, and this is even less flattering, is we blame shift. We basically blame our behavior or even our emotions on other people or other circumstances. And this usually takes forms like this. Um, I'm sorry I did X, Y, and Z. I was hungry. Should have had a Snickers. I, I was tired. I was stressed out really bad traffic, the guy on 95, just psychopath trying to run into me, you know. And so, and all of those things are true statements. But when we buy the lie that our circumstances make us behave a certain way, we have just surrendered any notion of control of our life over to other people and circumstances. So-and-so made me angry. They did not, they did not make you, they did not make you angry. You chose to be angry in response. Now, let me clarify. I mean, those, the, the temptation is there. If you're tired, then you're more tempted to give in to these sorts of you know, negative behaviors. If you're hungry, you're more tempted to give in to you know, frustration, anger. If you're sleepy, all these things are real temptations. But there's a distinction between temptation and actually forcing you to do something. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Bible says that God will never let us be tempted beyond his ability. And that's connected to his faithfulness. And so we can say, yes, I was tempted to do something. But to say that something made me do something is to say 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is not true. Because God says he will never let us be tempted and so one thing that I just kind of, I haven't done it recently, one thing I've said in the past is, you know, just this phrase, this is not too much, whatever it is. According to the Bible, this is not too much. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this is not too much. If it were too much, the Lord would have held back some measure of this because he's not going to let me be tempted beyond my ability. So yeah, you're tired, but you didn't have to do it. 
You didn't have to. And that forces us to, uh, if we actually start taking responsibility for our emotions and our, and our behaviors, as opposed to doing just what's culturally acceptable and saying, you know, they made me feel this way, which, I'm sorry, by the way, push pause. If that were true, if circumstances and, be, um, and other people could make you do certain things, then why do two people who go through the same thing respond differently? Two people go through the same circumstance, yet respond completely differently. If the circumstance made them behave a certain way, then they should have responded the exact same way. But they didn't. And this leads us to the unflattering truth. Remember, we're all standing in front of this mirror right now, and I'm at the front of the room saying, I have a ton of work to do, a lot of work to do. Um, but I'll have this up on the screen. It says, circumstances don't cause behavior. Circumstances reveal character. Or the way that my pastor puts it, um, he says, crisis reveals character. Circumstances don't cause behavior, they reveal character. And so just a couple simple illustrations. If you have an orange, and this orange can talk, first off, you should probably give it to a scientist for experimentation. But just if this orange is talking to you, and it's saying, I am an apple. You're saying, no, you're, you're definitely an orange. No, I'm an apple. I am sure that I'm an apple. You press this orange, and what comes out of the orange? Well, orange juice, not apple juice. And then the orange were to say, well, you made me do that. That's your fault. You pressed me. You made orange juice come out of me. I'm actually an apple. That's, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Yet we do that all the time. I'm actually a really loving person, but that person just made me behave a certain way. It's like, no, you just got pressed, and what's on the inside actually came out. You can usually hide behind it because you're in a good mood, well-rested, and well-fed. Listen, if we're well-rested, well-fed, and having a good time, then we're practically unoffendable. It's kind of like when Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's like, oh, I love people who love me. That's great. I, I can behave well and loving when everything goes my way. But the real question is, when things don't go your way, what do you see? And are you willing to own that instead of deflect and say, well, I was just tired. This person was rude. I'm stressed out at work. And all those things are real. But again, they didn't make us do anything. Proverbs 17.3 will be up on the screen. It says, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold but the Lord tests the heart. Now, I know in modern days, the way that we purify metals is going to be using chemicals and things like that. I actually have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But in ancient times, how do you purify a metal? What do you do? Heat. Heat. What happens when you put gold or silver in heat? The impurities rise to the surface. And then, now, I will also say, the blacksmith never has... Um, never reveals the impurities for the sake of the impurities being revealed. It's always for the sake of purification. It's not like you're going to go through all the process of heating up metal and be like, oh, there's some of the dross rising to the surface. All right, let it cool off and let it go back in. No, it's for the sake of purification. He scrapes it off. He scrapes it off. And so as we're you know, heated and these impurities come to the surface, the Lord scrapes it off. That's a different message in, in, in and of itself. But my point is just this. The heat did not cause the impurities in the metal. It revealed the impurities in the metal. If there is 12 karat gold, that's 50% gold, 50% other metals. And it's saying, I am 24 karat gold. I am 99.9% .9 pure. It's, it's humble enough to say that there's 0.1% that's not pure. But it's like, I am 99.9, but it's actually only 50% gold. And then the heat supply, again, it's like, well, no, I, I am pure, but that circumstance just made me do that. No, it just revealed. C.S. Lewis gives another analogy. If after this, after this, I leave here and I go brew a cup of chamomile tea because I need to calm down after having a room full of people stare at me for a while. And so I'm brewing this chamomile tea and I put it in just cool water, lukewarm water. Well, what happens? Nothing happens. I just have some tea floating around in room temperature water. But if it's put in hot water and left there for a minute, the flavor begins to be released. 
Same principle, same thing we're talking about. In the hot water, our flavor is released. And so are we humble enough to look in the mirror and say, I don't like what I see, but I'm actually going to take responsibility for it instead of deflecting it? Because we live in a culture of people that go throughout their entire lives deflecting instead of owning. And you see people like this, like they just, and they end up becoming old and bitter. The problem is always with the rest of the world. If the rest of the world is crazy, then we have a problem because we're the common denominator there. And so let me just speak to one thing really quickly. Um, you know, there could be people in this room who have gone through some very, very difficult things, and it could be very hard to even hear and receive what I'm saying. Be like, how can you say so-and-so didn't make me do something when I went through X, Y, and Z? All I'm saying is this. Um, we've all gone through difficult things to varying degrees, some really bad, some comparatively not as bad. We've all had struggles, and we've all been victims at points. My point is just this. No matter what happened, you can begin to take responsibility for where you are now and heal. You can begin to, again, meet with a counselor, go see a Christian counselor, a pastor, or something like that. If there's stuff and you're like, yeah, I have all these struggles, anxieties, fears, anger, things like this based on stuff that happened to me in the past, okay, those things are real, and you've been dealt a hard hand. But, but you don't have to stay there. But in order not to stay there, you have to assume responsibility and saying, even if somebody else caused this years ago or did something years ago in a manner, like caused it in a manner of speaking, it's, they're not going to fix it for me. It's been laid in my lap, and so now I have to choose what to do with it. And, um, and, I, and I will just tell you, from the scriptures, it's very clear that the Lord has a very, very soft spot for the oppressed. Very, very soft spot. And so I do just want to speak to that um, but the question is, okay, so if we don't do these two things here, if we don't, um, if we refuse to deflect, if we refuse to hide behind giftedness, and we're just kind of faced with the reality that I need to grow. In fact, I won't go into details about it now, but the Lord really um, showed me recently a pretty serious lack of love in my heart. I was doing a lot of the right things and saying a lot of the right things, but just a pretty severe lack of general love for people in my heart. And it, and it seared me. It, like, it singed my heart. It was... It was it wasn't condemnation from the enemy. It was the Holy Spirit giving me real awareness of where I am. And so what do we do when we see this? Well, one, we obviously we repent. We agree with the Lord. We say, God, I'm sorry. I see this. And I don't want to be in this place. I take responsibility for this, but I can't get out of this. The fruit of the Spirit is not something you can just grunt and self-generate. You don't grit your teeth and, you know, pop out the fruit of the Spirit. No, it comes only by virtue of staying attached to the vine, Jesus, John 15. And as we stay attached to the vine, the vine will bear the fruit through us. And so the solution to this is it is impossible to move forward in this area without being connected to, close to, and abiding in Jesus in a very real way. And so the solution is not behavioral necessarily, although it will involve behaviors. It's not pray for 45 minutes and read for 30 minutes every day for a month and boom. You're going to love people. No, those things are going to be part of the process, but the solution is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Watchman Nee, who wrote the book, The Normal Christian Life, said that God's solution to every problem is always more of his son. No matter what we're facing, the solution is Jesus. It's Jesus. An old mentor of mine um, who's gone on to be with the Lord used to say, the kingdom of God is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. This is kind of like when you hear people say, I didn't know Jesus was all that I needed until he was all that I had. Or how Jesus himself said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so if we want to move forward, there has to be an actual sense of desperation of, I have a problem. This isn't something I need to work on. It's like, no, the defining quality of a disciple is absent in my life. 
whether it's specifically rudeness or one of these other qualities as well. But how do we do this? Um, we receive love to give love because the more that we understand the Lord's love for us, the more it will flow out. Trying to love people without first being filled up by God is like taking an empty pitcher and pouring it into a glass. Even though you're upside down, nothing's coming out. You receive love to give love. And so I want to actually close today with something that's, um, that uh, I don't, want, I don't want, just want to tell you what to do. I want us to do this together. We're going to listen to the Lord. We're going to let him speak to us through his word. And so how we're going to do this is we're going to read through Psalm 23 and just pause a little bit along the ways, and I'll comment some. But the objective is not to learn something new about the Bible. The objective is to see just a little bit more clearly the Father's heart for you. And so these verses are going to be up on the screen. We'll start with Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So he's our shepherd. We're his sheep. The shepherd takes care of the sheep. He looks out for us. He leads the sheep. He doesn't let the sheep just wander to and fro and try to figure it out themselves. He takes care of them. He provides for them. We lack nothing. He meets all of our needs. And if we don't have something we think we need, that's just because our good shepherd knows that it's not what we actually need. Because I lack nothing. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And continuing in verse 3, it says, he refreshes my soul. Now, we'll leave that up there right now, and I'll pause halfway through that verse. He leads me beside still waters and green pastures. He takes me to places of rest and calm. He doesn't take me to places of panic, anxiety, worry, and fear. He takes me to places where I can rest in him. You know, she ruminate on the grass, where we can go and meditate on his word in a place of peace and calm where we can just kind of hear him speak to us. He says he refreshes our souls. And then he guides us along the right path for his namesake. It's for his namesake. It's not on my shoulders. I don't have to perform to keep him faithful to me. He's made a covenant. And based on his own name, he's going to do this. He said in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then continuing in verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. No matter what's going on circumstantially, even if it's so dark in this valley that you can't see the shepherd, the fact that he's still there is a comfort. His presence is our comfort. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. So no matter what's going on circumstantially, we know that he's in there with us. And any sheep in the presence of a shepherd is going to feel safe. That shepherd takes care of us, and so we don't have to worry about the predators in the dark valley. We don't have to worry about how long we're going to be in it because the shepherd is leading, guiding, and taking care of us. And then in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so, and not in the absence of my enemies, but in the presence of my enemies, there's always going to be things surrounding us trying to attack us, but there's such peace in the presence of the shepherd that we can sit down and have a meal. And the only way we can do that is how can we let our guard down in the presence of enemies only because we know that we're being taken care of? Only can we sit down and dine with the Lord and not be distracted by all the things that are assailing us because we know that God can handle all of those things and I can sit down for a minute and hear from him. And then continuing to verse 6, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So a little teachy here. It says, surely your goodness and love will follow me. The word follow, really unique word to use here. The word that's translated as follow, the Old Testament is in Hebrew and Aramaic, not Greek. But the, the Hebrew word that's translated as follow, elsewhere in the Bible, is frequently used to describe an army pursuing and attacking another army. 
It's like if an army is trying to outrun, this other army is following it, is pursuing it. In fact, some translations will even say, surely goodness and love will pursue me. And so what's the idea here? The idea here is that his goodness and love are going to hunt you down. Not to destroy you, but to embrace you. It is uh, very much like uh, Jesus with the, the, the parable, the, the, the 99 sheep and the one that goes astray. It says the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one and brings it back, carrying on his shoulders, rejoicing. And so you should be able to say, I have been carrying a weight, probably, possibly, in my walk with the Lord that I don't need to carry. His love is set on me, and I can operate out of that love, not trying to gain it. And if we can really believe that, if we can really believe that, then that will fill us up, and we'll be operating from a place of fullness. And like back in verse 5, it says, our cups will overflow. Love will just spill in every direction. And so um, just as we close, though, uh, one thing I want to say is, you know, Psalm 23, that's really encouraging. And, uh, you know, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him in John 10, 27, where he, in John 10, where he says that he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. But it would be ridiculous of me to point out the obvious um, thing in the room that maybe you're not a Jesus follower. Maybe you can't call yourself one, one of the lambs of God, a sheep. He says the sheep hear his voice and follow him. Maybe you can't say, you know, I'm actually following the Lord. Maybe you even made a profession for the Lord, but you've never seen any fruit from that. For six years, I thought I was a believer, but I wasn't. You know, the fruit didn't match the tree. I'm saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's nothing in my life to indicate that I cared about the Lord at all. I just didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to go to heaven either, though. But my point is just, if you're looking in the mirror and you say, oh, that sounds fine, well, good, and even great, but I just can't say that I'm actually in that group, I just want to let you know you don't have to leave that way. God moved heaven and earth, pun definitely intended, to provide a way. God could have just left us as we were, but God being rich in mercy, compelled, driven by mercy and love. For God so loved the world that he gave gave his only son. He went through all of that because he'd rather have eternity with us than without us. And we've bought the the, the lie that um, our behavior makes us lovable or not. No, and that leads to two things. One is the thought of, I can earn my way to be good enough, or God could never forgive me. And both of those are lies. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God is rich in mercy. And the only people who are going to hell are the people who refuse to accept the free invitation that he's given. And so, in a manner of speaking, those who go to hell are those who choose hell. And I just want to say, you don't have to stay there if you are there. It's a simple function of surrendering your life to the Lord. It's a simple function of putting him on the throne, of pledging allegiance to Jesus. The Bible says that those who believe in his name, God gives the right to become the children of God, that Jesus came, God in the flesh, died on a cross, paid for our sins, rose on the third day so that all those who believe in him could experience the life that he deserved but gave up freely. He's the only person in the history of the world who did not deserve to die and yet died. And so there's the great exchange. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. Right? His death and our life. He died so we didn't have to. And so I just simply, you know, I'll, um, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And in that time, I'll 
give you a model prayer that you can pray if you're in that place. Um, there's nothing special about the words, obviously. It's all about the condition and the posture of your heart. And if you do pray that prayer, find somebody afterwards. I'll be hanging out. You know, Pastor Mark is here too. And you just find somebody and uh, ask us what the next step is because we cannot walk it out alone. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to discuss your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word and that you love us as much as you do. Father, I, um, I ask that you help us to love just the way that you love, Lord. Just like you said, Jesus, um, that's the defining quality of your followers. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to live in a way that reflects your heart and that, uh, that pleases you. And Lord, I pray that you just give us your heart for other people. And Lord, for those in here, anybody who doesn't know you, Lord, I, begin, I pray that you begin speaking to their heart very clearly, Lord, that they feel the weight in their chest, that they know that you're drawing them to you, that you're wooing them to yourself, Lord, that you're inviting them to come and experience all they've ever wanted without even realizing that's what they've been longing for. Because Jesus, everything is uh, found in you. And so, Lord, if that's them, um, I pray that you just, even now, help them take that step. And if that is you, you can just repeat, not repeat, just pray silently something along the lines of, Lord Jesus, I see that I'm a sinner. I believe that you came to die for sins, that you were crucified, but that death couldn't hold you, and that you rose on the third day, thus validating, vindicating, and proving everything that you ever said to be true. And that in your name, by believing in you, I can experience the forgiveness of sins. And I give you my life and ask you to help me to follow you. It's as simple as accepting a free gift. But Lord, I just pray that you help us to have your eyes as we go throughout our days and just really see things spiritually and not just get too stuck in um, the down here thinking. But Lord, we love you. Um, and we just need your help in everything we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.